The Sports Career Podcast, episode 356, The Future of Women's Football. Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector of the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in the women's football industry. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest, it's such a privilege to have Kelly Simmons, OBE, who is the former FA Director of the Women's Professional Game. Now she's currently a sports consultant for the Premiership Women's Rugby and FIFA, and also she's a board member at Women in Football. For that reason, it's such a privilege to have Kelly as a podcast special guest on the show, where she will share her 30 plus years of experience working in women's football and explain to you the future of women's football from her perspective. Get your notepads out, get your pen, and take some notes because you will need it and enjoy. Kelly, it's such a privilege to have you on the Sports Career Podcast. Please do share to listeners your football industry career journey. When did it all start? Over 30 years ago, um, by chance, a lot of people say to me, now, how did you get into football? Um, did you think about going into football when you were younger? Did you plan for it? No, no, no. I fell into it by luck. I think, you know, I was of the generation where women weren't allowed to play football. I wasn't allowed to play football uh, at school. Uh, never thought about a career in football because there was absolutely no visibility of, of women in it, even though I was a massively passionate football fan and desperately wanted to play. Uh, and when I've turned up to Warwick University the first week, I literally ran to Freshers' Fair to sign up for the women's football team. I was that desperate to uh, to kick a ball. Um, so, yeah, it was by chance, really. I went to university to study sociology and social policy. I was supposed to go back to do a master's in social work uh, and social policy and took a year out to be sports officer, sabbatical sports officer, and never went back. So, uh, yeah, that's how I realised you could have a career in sport. Um, And so my first job was Manchester University, uh, straight after Warwick, uh, to organise their sports activities. I've got my coaching badges by then. Football coaching badges are starting to do some football development work in the community, you know, from an early age, very passionate about trying to provide opportunities for women and girls uh, and to develop female coaches and teachers to uh, help women and girls play the game. When the FA called, I said, we've got this, uh, we're taking on these regional managers for women's football. They weren't running women's football then. This is how far back we're going. And would you be interested uh, in coming in to have a chat? Well, I rang my dad and he was so excited about it. I thought we're going to the FA's HQ. He took me, he got me on the train and took me to so city in a cafe around the corner. Um, uh, FA was at Lancaster Gate then. It was quite sort of famous uh, sort of offices in, in central London. So I went in for an interview for a job that I never even thought could exist and uh, came out with a job as a regional manager for women's football. And so the first 
you know, I was, uh, so it's going back, you know, then my job really was um, coaching coaches, coaching teachers, predominantly trying to set up some infrastructure for girls to play in schools and in the local community. And then uh, quite quickly, I suppose, um, I ended up being called in nationally to work uh, alongside Howard Wilkinson, who was an incredible male ally, and he was developing the Charter for Quality. And it was great to see him get... Uh, recognition in the King's Honours recently because he's probably one of the most visionary people in football and uh, he had the vision for St George's Park and the boys academies um, which has transformed you know football in this country and the uh, sort of elite development of footballers in this country and alongside in that document on charter quality he pulled me in to write uh, the talent development plan for the women's game and at that point there was just an England women's senior team uh, and uh recruit you know a, a amateur league and that was it uh, I think we did our first count we found 80 girls or women's teams so there was literally no pathway so uh, with Howard um, we got the funding to put the England youth teams in and the girls centres of excellence and money alongside the government to start to build the uh, grassroots and girls game so started to put the pathway and of course we went on to Point Hope Powell to drive uh, the pathway and 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 put yeah put put in place really a lot of the uh, the steps that the subsequent England players have come through. So that was an amazing uh, time, you know, to be involved because it really was a blank piece of paper. Um, and then I went, uh, which I probably people don't realise this, but then went to work in men's and women's football. So I was director of development. Again, another incredible job working with some fantastic people. I worked with Sir Trevor Brooking. Um, other very great people uh, we were transforming the uh, county football associations so they were very much um, run by volunteers uh, all about sort of red and yellow cards and the regulation side of the game and we wanted them to become development agencies that deliver uh, services to develop football for the 11 million customers that are out there um, so we put in development stuff. It was a big change program, a big cultural change program, and, and with <clears throat> with change programs comes resistance and challenges. Um, but uh, we were determined to uh, sort of drive through um, a development arm of their business. So putting development staff in that could support clubs with uh, capital um, developments uh, into the football foundation, developing their coaches, developing referees, building multi-team clubs, improving youth football. We changed the way children play football. We brought in the respect programme, charter standard to drive standards in clubs, safeguarding. We put referee development offices in the counties because there's a chronic shortage of referees. So big, big sort of change programme, fantastic job to be in because again it was almost sort of a, a blank piece of paper at the start um, and now obviously you know all of the counties have got big development arms that are out there building and growing football so that again was great to to be involved in and then 2018 Martin Glenn uh, fantastic chief exec of the FA who oversaw probably its biggest change that I saw in its 30 plus years asked me if I was interested in doing a transformational change piece on the Women's Super League and the uh, the Women's Championship or Women's Professional Game. And uh, and I thought about it and I sort of went back to, you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning, which is giving girls and women the opportunities that I didn't have, uh, my generation didn't have. And 
I'd seen all of the benefits um, that that gave people. Um, grew up with my my brother Andrew, and he off, went off to play cricket, rugby, and football. And and they were the sports that were on TV. They were the sports that I was interested in, and they were the sports that I absolutely wasn't allowed to play as a girl. And I'd you know, and, and even at a very very young age, I had this sort of real sense it was completely uh, unfair and, and ridiculous. And and also saw how you know he went off traveling around to play made new friends was connected into his community in a way that I wasn't and I just thought women and girls you know they're missing out on so much by not having that range of of team sports and all of those wonderful things that team sports bring and I felt you know that so going back to you know why did I then come out of uh, being director of development and take the WSL job I think I honestly felt that the women's super league could be the one that broke through in terms of women's sport you hardly saw any visibility of any women's sport going back to sort of summer 2018 when I was mulling over the job. Uh, you'd see it in sort of pinnacle moments, Olympics, you know, World Cups, and then it would just disappear. Um, and so there was no sort of mainstreaming uh, of women's sport. And I thought, thought yeah, WSL, we can do this. Uh, went in, uh, got zero revenue, um, very, very limited uh, TV deal with BT Sport at the time with a, a small number of games on it, sort of low standards really, very small audiences around eight and nine hundred, very 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 small team of people who literally were just running it, you know, just giving everything just to to run it to get the fixtures out to operate it, and bit by bit, you know, we built it up into uh, centrally an eighteen million pound business. Um, by the time uh, I stepped away. Uh, a few months ago and obviously the Sky and BBC was transformational in that bringing on brands like Barclays as title sponsor um, and building uh, attendances and it was a fantastic period to work with the clubs again on a big sort of change piece really um, so five years yeah five years of doing that alongside that we ran a recommendation or made a recommendation to the board about what the right ownership structure should look like for the Super League and the Championship and of course you know as people will be aware that recommendation was an independent uh, club-owned company, which uh, so that it's got a laser focus and, and a voice of its own uh, and can make decisions that are in the best interest of the women's professional game. And and that, of course, is, is being set up. And Nikki Doucette, who will be a brilliant chief exec, has been appointed the first chief exec of that. And, uh, and it kicks off in the summer and it's got a really, really exciting future, I think. So yeah, so that's uh, that's my thirty-two years uh, to date in football, and of course now I've come out and I'm working for myself, consulting and advising. Well, look, I've got the biggest smile, and I have to decode this, Kelly. Like honestly, I've got to decode those thirty-two years with that wonderful answer. Can we go right back to the uh, beginning at Warwick University? Because if students are listening to this, graduates are listening to this reflecting how important was that role as that sports officer to just build those skills, even if they were very raw, with regards to getting the role at the FA, which you said you couldn't believe existed that role, but you got that job. So I just want to go back in time from that side of things or what you learned working community sport right from the get-go, looking back. Yeah, I think fundamental, I think, for two reasons. I think, um, firstly, uh, it opened my eyes to a career in sport, which I hadn't even thought about. And then secondly, it gave me some really useful and relevant experience that enabled me to then get another job in sport the moment I came out from being sports officer at Warwick. So I think, you know, it helped um, 
develop my and then be able to demonstrate sort of organizational skills uh, event management skills to you know uh, tournament organization skills um working in the community understanding the community um sporting landscape etc so i think you know without that you know i was definitely heading in a different different career path the reason why i mentioned this i said this before off air we were talking about ali pali in the darts competition which is over now I said to you that I was the president of my uh, darts team at Van Milder. I was the first president and setting up that sport. Now, I'll be honest, I don't play darts anymore, everybody, but I kid you not to be the president. And like Kelly said, those organization skills are priceless. So could you provide any tips of like, for me, the tip I'd give is just do it. And if you make mistakes, this is the time to make mistakes. When you're in the industry, I wouldn't say consequences. We're always learning lessons. But looking back, I learned so much in that president role for two years. Would there be any tips you would give to graduates to put themselves out there in these roles, just to, as as we've already discussed, just to get those skill sets developed? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I had to stand uh, for election, and so um, that involved uh, giving a speech in front of hundreds and hundreds of students in the massive student union, and sing a song and tell a joke. And I'm not kidding; I didn't sleep for a week. I was so nervous. And the easy thing to do would be to pull out because it was so daunting. And I'd never spoken in front of more than my friends. Um, and I literally couldn't sleep. I felt sick, absolutely sick. And I think I've taken, and then of course, it, I made myself do it. So there must be some sort of resilience in there somewhere and determination. I sort of made myself do it, even though it's absolutely, you know, I suffered. <laughs> and I've sort of taken that lesson with me because, you know, I made myself do it. I got through it, uh, won the election and went on, you know, went on to help cement my career. And so I think there's something about getting out of your comfort zone um, and forcing yourself because it's only by getting out of your comfort zone that you build new skills. And that wouldn't bother me at all. You know, every time you step up, you get a bit nervous, of course, Um when you have to speak in public but you know I definitely would not be losing sleep for a week and that's because you you know it's part of your your growth and development isn't it is uh, getting outside of your comfort zone and then as, as you as you build uh keep building and building it becomes more and more comfortable so um and you, you get more confidence um from it and so um you know I think that was an early lesson I think in being brave and, and getting out of your comfort zone even when it's really uncomfortable. hundred percent. And just to follow suit on this, I'm sort of, again, I'm decoding your first answer. When you did get the new role and you said it was a blank canvas, how did you approach that in regards to yourself? Did you look at it as like a, a, a fun challenge? Did you look at it as areas where I need to build a team to then deliver that pathway? Because you said there was no pathway, so there's nothing you can compare it to. You had to build it literally from scratch. I'm just curious of, what are the first couple of steps? I mean, I love that sort of blank piece of paper because you get the chance, obviously, to to put your own paw prints on it. Um, obviously, I would be looking at, I would have been looking at what was in place in men's football, albeit that you know it was a multi, even then it was a multi multi million pound uh, industry, and and you know it was it was you couldn't really compare, and you certainly couldn't replicate it. But there was always best bits of it that you can try um <clears throat> to uh to look at uh, and then obviously we'd look at other sports a lot so um i guess drawing on on what's currently out there and working well um, 
in sport and, and what we think might be the best for the women's game. And I, I'm naturally a sort of a collaborative person. I like to, so I would have been talking to people involved in the women's game and the clubs and those stakeholders um, and, and talking to, well, there wasn't much of a team then. There was a very, very small team of us doing various jobs in women's football, but of course spending a lot of time, you know, with them because, you know, I've hardly ever come out with a, a fabulous idea of my own that hasn't you know we haven't sort of come up with together or or looked at other sports or other industries and thought oh, that maybe that um could work well so uh yeah I, I guess you know that was he's going back in time somewhat but um that that would have been the route through just you know thinking talking collaborating looking at testing um, to try and get that structure and pathway right. And just with regards to the structure, I just want to dig deep a little bit more because I'm fascinated because it's so raw and I love it because it means you can be very creative. Did you have to be creative with regards to your approach looking back? I think, yes. I think um, when you worked uh, in women's football, you had to um, be creative about how you got the funding. So um, we were always, I think, sharper as a team on having to get public money so working really closely with sport england other government funds uh looking at opportunities where there might be some funding in sport that women's football could tap into because it just didn't have the resources of men's football so i think we were more creative in that sense the the women's football team because we had to be because um we had to make you know a small amount of money go 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 a long way and one thing you mentioned about change, may I ask how you created the change in culture over those 32 years, reflecting again. The reason why I share that is everybody reflects now from 2022 and the high success with regards to England women's football, but we forget about the 20 plus years beforehand that made that possible. So I'm just curious of how you implemented change subtly to the public eye. Yeah. Well, I think, well first of all, I mean... Obviously, there was a massive, I saw a massive change in culture within the FA over those 30 years. And I went, when I went in, the FA didn't run women's football. It sat within a very poorly funded women's FA um, and, and came in quite early on. Uh, the FA sort of took it over. Um, but it was very much men's football governing body. It was predominantly all men. Um, there tended to be the women, apart from the three of us, three or four of us that are working on the women's game that have been brought in into the technical department. Most of the women there were administrators, secretaries, as they were called uh, in those days, um, in in uh, sort of almost in typing pools, you know, and then everybody else was male and it was all male leaders, really. And, um, yeah, you know, and women's football was... There's little support for it, and those pockets of support were were driving in, you know, and you had to find out who your allies were and and help try and influence change. Uh, I think culture's a hard one, isn't it? Because of course you've got you've got um, you know it doesn't change quickly. It's it's hard work to change it. It needs to come from the top. I think you know we would create subcultures in our team where we're all passionate about the cause and committed. To, to the women's game and we'd find our, our allies um, and, and keep sort of, you know, work very, very closely together to try and drive the game. But it didn't necessarily mean that the overall culture at that point was changing. That takes leadership at the top. I think the transformational change that I saw 
was when Martin Glenn came in as chief exec and then followed by the current chief exec, Mark Bullingham, who genuinely, passionately care about the women's game and see it as a big strategic priority and are prepared to invest in it. What, what do they say? Don't don't tell me what you care about. Show me your budget and I'll see what you care about. You know, that phrase, very true. You know, Mar Martin was the first one, I think, to really, really invest in it. And and it start and then of course the lionesses started to do to do really well at a time when the England men weren't doing so well. You know, like obviously went on to get the bronze medal in 2015. You could feel this sense of pride in the organization about the lionesses. Um, and, and that's where you started to feel the cultural change. So instead of being little sort of pockets of healthy sort of subcultures that are passionate about the women's game that, that we were driving, it felt like an overall organisational change. More women uh, were coming into the senior management team. Um, at that point, more women's football roles on, on the senior management team. Um, the shadow of the leader and the shadow of that leadership being cast across the FA was hugely powerful. And it started to feel like um, a governing body of men's and women's football that cares deeply about men's and women's football and has really clear strategies to invest in and develop in men's and women's football, as opposed to women's football being a bit of something that we sort of should do. We're not really going to take it terribly seriously and we don't really believe it's got this incredible future, which is absolutely crazy because without doubt in my lifetime, women's football will be the second biggest sport behind men's football in the world. So uh, to not sit on something so powerful as such an opportunity for growth in your sport, you know, just shows maybe sometimes the lack of vision that's been there. Um, but I can honestly say as I stepped away that the FA genuinely felt like the governing body of men's and women's football. And that is its highest compliment. I think I can pay it because I've seen it when it's been... <laughs> The absolute opposite end of that spectrum when I went in. Final point for we talk about the future of football, which you've just touched on there, because I think this is a really key component, because I saw this at the Athens Women's Football Summit with the working relationship with yourself and Rachel Pavlou, who you hired in 1998, which I just want to talk about your core team or certain people who worked with you to create the change, put in the vision to where women's football is now, because we've talked about a bit of strategy, we've talked about culture, but I'd love to just talk about how you built your team or having certain people throughout your time who had influence to the change to where it is today. Yeah, oh my God, there's been so many. You know, I've been absolutely blessed to work with some incredible male allies. Uh, we've mentioned a couple of them already, Howard Dickinson, Sir Trevor Brooking. Fantastic men who supported and helped drive women in football and women's football. And there's some incredible women, um, Rachel Pavlo being one of those, whose contribution to women's football in this country is absolutely incredible. Um, and there are others, um, many others. I'll probably, if I start listing them, I'm probably upset because <laughs> Donna, Donna McIver is unsung hero of the FA, who's been driving all the incredible change in girls having the opportunity to play football in schools and uh, all the work that is being done now with Barclays around school sports partnerships driven by Donna, who's just the most modest person you'd ever meet. Um, and he's changing the opportunities for girls in this country to play football. And if you don't get a chance to play in schools, you're probably not going to go and just 
or have the confidence and the skills to just go and rock up at a club. So that stuff's really fundamental. Of course, Hope Powell, you know, what a leader, what a visionary, what a leader. Um, you know, I, I think she talks about in her book that I sat in her kitchen and wouldn't let her go until she accepted the England job because she turned it down initially um, because I knew that she would be phenomenal, you know, and has gone on to make one of the biggest contributions. Uh, and then I've worked with some incredible women in, you know, leaders. Um, Dawn Airy probably being the best and and, and my favourite, um, who's, you know, chair of the Women's Super League and Championship, got an incredible career, you know, absolutely incredible career, the most generous person with her time, incredibly smart. And uh, obviously I learned loads uh, working with her. And of course, she's had a massive influence on the Women's Super League and was absolutely fundamental in, in helping get the uh, TV deal over the line, which has gone on to transform the WSL. So, yeah, I'm really blessed to have worked with some fantastic people who are real. I mean, it's an overused word, isn't it? Women's sport game changers. They really are game changers. I need to dig a little bit deeper because you're so modest. I hope people are listening to the modesty. I'm just curious, though, how you developed your leadership skills over that period of time and how were you defined to be an effective leader? I think I developed my skills, I suppose. Um, well, first of all, I think there's no substitute for hard work and determination. Um, and I think the fact that I'm so passionate about the cause and why, you know, the, the, the history of why I'm so passionate about the cause from, you know, having been sort of blocked off uh, from football, I think is, is a big driver. I think um, you have to build resilience. I think it's not all, it's not all been easy. You know, um, there's been some tough times in there. Uh, I'll give you an example, because we were talking about Rachel Pavlo a minute ago. You know, I was with Rachel when... WSL was supposed to launch earlier than 2011 and it got pulled because the FA was in financial trouble. So Tanta, its media partner, had gone down and uh, we were headed suddenly into massive cuts and redundancies and WSL was due to launch earlier. We'd put all the work in and had just sent all the documentation to the clubs to, uh, to apply for a licence and had to pull it. So it launched, I think it was a year later might have been two years later than it should um you know and they were some dark days in there we'd worked so hard to try and put in place the foundations to shift the game from amateur to semi-professional and then it had the you know the rug literally pulled from under us when they uh, you know what's the first thing we can cut and we haven't launched this yet we'll cut that sort of thing so uh, yeah been, so you need to be resilient because there's been some knocks it's not easy how were you resilient in that moment when it did go under the rug? How did you, it's all well people saying, well, you just, you know, get up again, dust yourself off. But that's easy said than done because you, you've you got the mindset approach where you've worked so hard. And I know that's resilience, but in that moment, how did you bounce back with Rachel by your side as an example or other team members? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? Because there's been a few of them and, and I don't know how people say to me, how do you sort of build resilience? And I don't actually know the answer and you can sort of read the books. But I think the way I describe it is that the cause is comes back to being so passionate about the cause that I have to go again. We have to go again. You know, Rachel and I knew we had to, as much as 
we sat in Soho Square <laughs> and didn't want to go back in the office. We had to find a way to dust ourselves down and go again because we cared so deeply about the game and giving women and girls the chance to play the game and to develop the game that that we have to keep going. I think, and it comes back to, I suppose, what's deep inside is this passionate drive to develop women and girls football, not just because I'm passionate about football, but because I genuinely think that it is the vehicle that can really help change attitudes to women and girls in society. Is there a greater sort of marker that girls and women and girls can do anything? Um, if you can be a professional footballer and travel the globe and play in front of 60,000 people, uh, you know, and multi-millions watching on TV, you know, what well, sends such a powerful statement, I think. So I think it comes back to that. I think you, have to, you dust yourself down because you care. Yeah. And final one, because I, I said this to Rachel Pavlou, the question, because she's so proud of wearing the badge football for all. And I asked her the question, how do you define it? I'm going to say the same question to you. How do you define football for all now, relating to the cause you've been passionate about the last 32 years? How do I define it? I, I suppose at that sort of you know, headline level, it's about everybody having the opportunity to, to participate and excel based on you know, hard work and talent and finding, you know, your appropriate level. Um, and I think football's made huge progress, but it's not there yet. It's, you know, it's, it, we know in the women's game that there needs to be more, more done to make sure that the game is diverse and that England and the WSL <clears throat> look like the communities that, that we, uh, you know, serve and represent uh, and play in front of. Um, and so we know, you know, there's a lot of work going on and has been over the last few years to drive that greater diversity. And, you know, women aren't a, a homogenous group and um, and that there needs to be greater diversity. We know there needs to be more done in the women's game. We've seen, I don't want to give this person any airtime, but we've seen the comments yes, in the last I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um which shows you how much sort of misogyny um, is there. Um, so there's loads, there's loads still to do, but, um, you know, for, you know, ultimately the, the ambition has to be that everybody has a chance to play and enjoy at whatever level and in whatever role, you know, I want a national game and I'm really passionately believe in that. 100% out. This is on a personal development standpoint. You said very briefly that, you know, your your personal motivation every morning was to wake up to improve more opportunities for women and girls in football. How much of a driver is that? Because I know we can all use different tactics and, you know, with regards to every day, use it to advantage. And like, I'm always energized when I get on the mic, everybody, you know that by now for the last nine years. But I'm really curious of how that mantra has supported you in general, like not just work at FA, but even what you're currently doing right now of that sort of get out the bed motivation with that mantra I'm curious it's uh, been hugely powerful so I think you know first of all I believe in this sort of higher purpose um, of women's football and, and and what it can bring for women and girls in in society and I think you know that motivates me but it motivated the teams that I worked in so uh, you know we all passionately believed in inspiring positive change so our higher purpose, you know, we started with that. And if, you, if that 
you know, doesn't get you out of bed in the morning, then, you know, you're probably in the wrong job, aren't you? <laughs> so, you know, I think it, it motivated me, but it helped to motivate teams. And I think, you know, when I reflect back on particularly the, the Women's Super, the job I did with, uh, as director of the Women's Professional Game with the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship, and I think, okay, well, what were those success factors of that sort of five-year period? And I think absolutely having that um, higher purpose uh, that mobilised all of us. I think it was about having a big ambition. We wanted to be the best women's league in the world. And that helped mobilise stakeholders, the clubs and the team internally. Um, and we could benchmark ourselves and go after things. So we were like, okay, well, we're number two in terms of the most followed league in the world we're going after. Uh, going after X and we're going to get to number one. And we did, you know, and it was like that. And, and it was just, you know, it was helpful, useful sort of markers of, of, of progress of, of where we're at, rather than being constantly compared to the men's Premier League, as we were in the media. You know, we were not the men's Premier League, who were a multi-billion pound organisation. So um, we set our stall out to be the best women's football league in the world. And uh, and that's what, you know, we, we very much went after. So, we, yeah, so we had high purpose, had a big ambition, and uh, a really clear strategy of, of what we were going to do, and everybody sort of lined up with absolute clarity on 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 the strategy around building our audiences, driving our revenue, uh, attracting and developing world class talent. Very simple strategy, uh, very clear sort of goals and ambitions with uh, within it, and then building the team. You know, a really positive, healthy culture, a great team environment. We'd invest in ourselves as a team. I'd invest in my development personally, as you know, I thought it was important as, for my development and as a shadow of the leader. Um, and, uh, you know, we built a really healthy, strong culture within the team and, and everybody had contributed and, and uh, you know, we made, it was wonderful, wonderful five years of fantastic people worked with, absolute privilege and a brilliant board as well uh, with Dawn Airy. And, uh, you know, we really um, moved the, you know, the women's professional game on. And it was a fantastic period to work in. So I think they were the key factors, really. I think, you know, that high purpose, that ambition, really clear strategy, and then a real investment in the team. Do you think that all those components you've just mentioned from England winning is the end product of what you've just said, not just winning the competition from a player standpoint, but from a whole organisation and change of culture? Um, I'm just curious because you're involved behind the scenes with the higher purpose perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, you know, the we were the women's professional game. We were contributing to to the England team by trying to provide the best league uh, and the best pathway. Um, we had other teams, brilliant teams. Um, Kay Cossington is technical director for the FA, working alongside Serena, obviously everything around England, when the players arrive at England, all of everything that wraps around that and all the England youth teams, um, you know, all based at St George's Park, also, you know, making an enormous contribution to to the game. So, and, and then you've got the, you know, the, the grassroots team growing the game for for the future. You know, there was, there, there were a lot, the FA is a big organisation, a lot of teams driving it. Uh, a really clear strategy for for the whole of the the women's game um investment across all of it um everybody making everybody contributing and, and contributing clearly to to a joined up strategy that is supported you know from the very very top 
by 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 the chief exec and the directors. So, um, but then you know, the FA can't do it on their own. The clubs clubs played a huge role. I'm not sure that they always get the credit that they deserve because without the investment in the clubs, you don't have professional women's football without professional women's football. And one of the top leagues in the world, you don't have a successful England side. So, you know, it's, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, fingerprints on those trophies, on that trophy. Yeah. Gosh, you're putting my sports policy hat going back to my days at Durham. We've talked about the elite end of the players on the pitch. How important is it to have that, you know, growth side of things from a grassroots standpoint relating to your time at the FA? Because I see you nodding your head, but for me, I always love on this podcast that there's not just roles in the professional end, there's amazing opportunities to work in football from the grassroots, which has a huge impact to growing the grain from the path, uh, path route standpoint. So I'm just curious of the, you know, the grassroots of women's football, how important is that factor in this whole conversation we're having today? Oh yeah, no, massive, massively important. I loved working grassroots football. absolutely loved it. Most of my life has been working in children's grassroots football as opposed to the elite end. It's only the last sort of five years I've moved in more into sort of the top end. Um, it's hugely important. I think when you come back to, you know, why do we sort of all get out of bed in the morning, then it's to give girls and women the chance to play. And there's no greater uh, opportunity to do that than those, the teams who are working so hard to develop football in schools and develop football uh, in clubs and in communities. Um, and, and, the transformation in that area has been phenomenal. You know, over three million women and girls playing football in this country. And I think I mentioned earlier the first team count that we did was about 80 teams. And I don't even know how many it is now, but it's, you know, it's in its thousands and thousands. Um, it's been phenomenal change. And um, you can really, you know, when you work in that area, you can really see the rewards of, you know, the game growing and, more coaches coming in and more referees and more people running the game and providing great opportunities for um, for girls uh, and women to participate. And there's been a big boost as well, and this has been driven by Rachel Pavlis. She had a few mentions today, hasn't she? I know, she is. Uh, I know. I mean, she's I been the architect behind a uh, big boost in recreational women. When you think, you know, there's plenty of women of my age and, and younger <laughs> Who, who weren't allowed to play and therefore didn't play, who suddenly sort of waking up in adult life and thinking, I want to play this amazing sport. And so recreational women's football has been a huge growth area as well. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great place to work in. I think if people get a chance to go and work in the county FAs or in the FA or in, in the uh, Premier League or EFL community programmes or other partnerships to go and work in, in the children's and grassroots game, absolutely you know, go and do it. It's a fantastic place to work in and, and you get a great reward um, for it in terms of, you know, if you're passionate about the game and what it can do for society. 100%. I want to touch on today's podcast topics. You've given a hint already with regards to your vision of the future of women's football, which is the second, you know, globalist sport around the world. I would love you to share this belief with regards to what you said, you said this at the Athens Women's Football Summit and it motivated me. I'd just love to hear your actual thoughts of the future of women's football now, you know, going forward, just from your perspective to where the game is and where you see it going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think, why do I think it would be the second biggest sport 
in the world behind men's football. But I think look where it is now on how little investment it's had and all the cultural barriers and blockers um, that it's had. And I think it's starting to be invested in. And those who are investing in it are seeing massive rewards. You take an Arsenal in their games um, at the Emirates, then, you know, 50, 60,000 people watching those games. And they've only just started really in the last, I mean, they've been investing for some time, but probably only really started investing in the marketing of it in the last couple of years. Look at the returns already. It's phenomenal. And in fact, you know, the risk of the WSL is that Arsenal leaves the other clubs behind um, in terms of uh, their attempts to build an audience um, and, and build a, you know, a, a big fan base and attendances. So I think if you look at globally, if you look at the Women's World Cup and you look at the huge, huge audience figures across the globe and sold out stadiums um, and then you see the impacts that that's having in countries across the world, then on limited, limited investment. I mean, some of those clubs, I think it's been well documented. Sorry, some of those countries are, it's been well documented. The sorts of lack of support some of them have had in preparation coming into, you know, major global tournament, probably the biggest, certainly the biggest women's sports tournament. And after the Men's World Cup, there's probably not that many more that, pull in the sorts of global audiences that the Women's World Cup pulled in. And yet they've been, you know, and the products have been fantastic. And uh, and yet a lot of the women have come through a journey of a, a really underfunded pathway, limited preparation and amateur sport and, 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 you know. So as it's invested in and grows, you think, well, where, where's its ceiling? For me, it's... It's, uh, I, I just can't, I, I just see it going past it. The sports, I genuinely do now. You know, people can say, well, she's a crazy and she's just football obsessed. And But I genuinely do. I think in my lifetime, I think it will, you know, be the second biggest sport. And I think you look at it here and I think, okay, so if every, if those clubs like Arsenal all step up, you've, you'd have gone past the FL. Championship attendances relatively quickly, and I know that we were already competing with them, audience-wise on television. And in fact, because we'd got BBC as well, you know, every time you put a game on the BBC One, it's about a million people watching it roughly. And every time it's on BBC Two, it's sort of five to six hundred thousand, and they're way ahead of most sports or audiences that weekend. So yeah, I, I honestly think it's it's going to be absolutely huge. And if you don't, if you can't see it, and you're not investing in it, I think you're crazy. Just on that point, if any brands are listening to this, when you talk about investment, people always think about the money, but actually, there's the marketing side, the fan engagement, building a community. I see you nodding your head just to give the body language, everybody. But how important is to look at the investment with impact? And I'll just love to touch on this point, like final one, because for me even through my experience getting involved with Athens women's football in 2018 with an idea, I had no idea about women's football and to see the impact on this podcast, to see the impact, I'm just going to say how it is in boardrooms and 
amazing people working in women's football and you said already with male allies who show care of the growth of the product can we just touch on that it's about impact not just investment they should work hand in hand i'd just love your thoughts on that point yeah absolutely i think you know why aren't more brands coming to the table i mean that's fascinating in itself sort of who's controlling the purse strings and, and making the decisions because women's football brings a different audience so it's not you're not just get you're not getting at the same people you know if you think oh job's done because we've already got them in men no it's a different audience it's a younger audience it's a diverse audience it's a more female skew um we know from the research around brands and women's sport that fans uh recognize and reward brands that are investing in women's sport because they deeply care about the cause and so you've got a greater propensity to purchase from brands that are involved in women's sport whereas men's football is cluttered and you know and um and also if you don't get in now well it's relatively the price point is relatively cheap in comparison to a lot of men's sport yeah i think it's madness you know a good price point You've got this massively growing audience, which is a different audience, which is a young, diverse audience, uh, and it's got a lot of purchasing power. As a female skew, and we all know that you know women control sort of the, the home purse strings, etc., um, etc. Et There's just so many benefits for getting involved. I'm just not sure that the brands are stepping up as quickly as the game is growing. And some of those audiences and attendances are huge. Hundred percent, especially with the television side of things. 100%. Wow. I hope people are taking notes, everybody. Kelly, I'd love to hear your thoughts of what you've enjoyed the most from your career journey looking back right now. I think of all of the jobs that I've done, I think my five years as director of the Women's Professional Game, I think, because it really was transformational change, you know, to come in and it would, there was zero, zero revenue. It was sort of a bundled TV deal with the men's game that didn't work for the women's which we had to sort of you know wait to get out of um so that we could go go to go to market and obviously you know we, we secured a eight million pound a year deal with um sky bbc to bring in barclays as, as title partner and bring other brands in and, and grow the business um and to see to move the game to fully professional it went fully professional in 2018 and and to put the academies in and to see you know such young talent coming through i think it, it was an incredible period to, to be involved um working with the, i loved working with the clubs clubs were fantastic and uh, the team i worked with at the fa were an absolute joy of talented people incredibly passionate incredibly hardworking. And yeah, I think that for me was a really, really special time because you could see that it was changing so quickly. You could feel it and see it and touch it. You know, it was incredible, the uh, the amount of change. But it's funny, I mean, and it was hard work. It was really hard work. I mean, it was a seven days a week job. Um, but, you know, absolutely no regrets. I loved it. It was funny, though. I went to for Christmas uh, dinner with some friends just before Christmas. And it's always the last weekend that the WSL play for winter break. And every year we go and have Christmas dinner with them. And they said to me, 
this year. So Kelly, this is the first year you haven't borrowed my office and sat in it having emergency meetings. <laughs> this is a Saturday. And that would probably tell you what the job was oh like. It was 24-7. But it and because it, it was a small team, we needed more people. It was under-resourced. And uh, so it was a small team and we were, but we were so dedicated. We just worked our socks off to drive that game forward. And it was incredible to be part of it. Just to follow up on this, because it's, it's so right for me to say this. How proud are you as well, relating to the cause, which you've mentioned a few times on this podcast, like how proud are you from the journey as well in general of what you've done in your team? Like you said, those five years, you worked your socks off. But I think proud is the right word here. And I'm just curious to how proud you are relating to your own journey. Yeah, yeah, I'm really proud. Yeah, in incredibly proud. Um, you know, sort of classic, you know, female, you know, imposter syndrome, lack of confidence, all of those things. You all go through the most convinced when I came out of the FA, nobody would ring and I'd be unemployed forever. Um, and then the phone rang lots and now I've got loads of work. Um so, you know, I've got all of those foibles that, uh, that you know, I'm sure most people have got. I, don't, I sort of spend most of my time thinking about what's next and what still needs to be done or what, what didn't get done that needs to be done. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, when I sort of force myself to sit down and stop uh, and reflect, then incredibly proud and incre incredibly lucky. You know, I, I, I didn't plan the career, as, as we've discussed. I fell into it. And uh, it's just been an absolute privilege to, to work in football. It's been a privilege to work at the FA. And it's been a privilege to work with some incredible people and, and some incredible teams. I feel very lucky, very blessed. Well, I feel very lucky speaking to you right now. Honestly, I'm just in awe of what I've just learned, and I hope the listeners too. Kelly, I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. And feel free to recap relating to what you've said throughout your journey. But what three tips will you give to the listener right now so they can literally take action with regards to pursuing a career in women's football? Like what tips would you give? I think there's no substitute, you know, for hard work uh, and determination. And so if you can work in something you're really passionate about, then that makes that really easy. I think invest in your development. Don't wait for someone else to sort of think about it and do it, you know, you get these people who sort of come along, go along to their appraisal or whatever and, and hope the manager's got all, all the answers. You know, the only person who can really take responsibility for your development is you. Um, so push whoever you're working for to to invest in it or invest in it yourself, whether that's, you know, leadership courses um, or, or, or whatever it is, you know, online learning, reading, reading books. But I think... The one thing I would, my third point, which is probably the most important, is to build your network. You know, I spent years thinking the most important thing was what you knew. It took me years to realize. I was so insular in the FA. I hardly ever came out of the FA. And it was only, I think, really when I started to head up the WSL and I realized, you know, we needed commercial partners and media partners and we needed the, the media on side and, 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 you know, there was all these stakeholders out there that um, sort of the who you know is as important or more important sometimes than the what you know. And so building your network is really, really important. So if you're uh, wanting to work, so if you're a woman wanting to work in football, I'd absolutely say join Women in Football. You know, I'm a, a proud 
uh, non-exec board member of Women in Football, uh, passionate about the cause of women working in a really positive, thriving industry and the industry being diverse and inclusive. And uh, that is a brilliant network of thousands of women, fantastic events. You meet brilliant women and Ebru Coxall. Sorry, I have to do a shout out because she influenced my development, by the way. So she's an absolute rock star if you're listening to this, Ebru. She is a rock star. She really is. And Women in Football is fantastic. So getting into networks, you know, whatever they are, uh, you know, Women in Football is a big one for me um, and still is. But, yeah, building your network. So building, you know, hard work, but building, investing in you, a couple of mentors as well during my career who are transformational. Absolutely, the most transformational thing I did. We touch on that, please, because mine was John Amici when I started when I was out of Durham. So I'm just curious, could you just touch on the power of a mentor relating to your experience, if if you don't mind? Yeah, so when I was um, director of development, this lady called Jane Hughes, who was fantastic, who was my uh, mentor, um, and she, she was very different, very different background for me. Not no no, no football background, uh, not. As, didn't work in sport, uh, much more on the business side and just made me think differently about how I influenced internally and the whole the business case uh, around football and, and women's football and, and, and speaking the right language to the right people to get them on side and, and build, uh, sort of build influence and, and relationships. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm, went through a massive uh, it felt like a really big uh learning curve and and change um through through her mentoring she was hugely influential um more so than any course I went on and then more in more recently when I was working leading the WSL uh, a lady called um Selena Crichton who does a lot around youth leadership as well um for around the FA Youth Council and she really helped me um, with uh, sort of managing change and some of the personal challenges I was going through uh, within the FA around sort of culture um, and, and trying to sort of drive change and get more support and more influence. And and just taking that time out sometimes yourself to talk to your mentor and spend time thinking and talking and stopping because you're so, so busy doing the job and there's so much to do that you can get just get on that treadmill and <laughs> keep running and running till you fall off the back um and so I found it invaluable to have somebody to to talk to and, and talk issues through and ask the right questions and and maybe put in a little sort of soft challenge here and there and, and make me think differently and and I for me they everybody learns differently but for me I think Jane and Selena probably two of the people that helped the most more than maybe any courses that, that I ever went on and textbooks that I read because it was more practical and directly relating to the issues that I got at the time. Did it provide any reassurance? The reason I share this, you just sparked it when I had my first meet with John and it was over lunch and I had a load of questions and he, he was giving me even bigger questions for me to answer. He didn't give me the, the result or the solution, but the one thing I learned with him was he provided better questions to solve, but I knew I wasn't alone. And that's how I look at a mentor. I've got a handful now from different perspectives, but 
for me, if you haven't invested in a mentor, and trust me, I bought all the lunches, the dinners, the coffees with him. For me, it was that I wasn't on my own. That was the power of a mentor for me. I see you nodding your head. Would you say that was the same for you with how they provided you better questions for you to solve, to, to support your growth? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's about right asking the, the right questions, isn't it? And helping you get to the right answers um, and being that completely independent person that gives you a different perspective, I suppose. Um, they're not steeped in it. They're not somebody in the organisation or in the team. There's somebody sitting on the outside and they can throw these objective sort of viewpoints in. Um, and so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I find it, I just think it's invaluable to to have a mentor. So, you know, don't be afraid to um, ask somebody to be your mentor because chances are they'll be really flattered and they'll probably say yes. So um, what have you got to lose? Um, you know, if you haven't got a mentor, um, get one and f find somebody who's prepared to give you a little bit of time each month for you to sort of think through your career and where you're at and how you're going to succeed in your, in your job or your future journey. It's definitely, definitely worth it. 100%. Should we do a little recap for people? So you've got to work hard. That's 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 important. Personal development's the other one. Build your network. And we had a cheeky bonus one. Find a mentor. I love those four. I see you nodding your head. Out of interest, Kelly, how can people follow you on social media? Like, where are the best places to go? Uh, well, I've sort of bore the nation on Twitter quite a bit. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Kelly Simo one uh, is, is my Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've set up my own um, sports consultancy business i'm working with uh, a number of clients i'm working with um Portis, uh consulting um run communications and uh i'm advising premiership women's rugby which is fabulous which is the new professional women's rugby that's uh that recently kicked off so it's privileged to to be supporting them as well uh, and i'm working with fifa so uh so yeah i'm on linkedin and um I'm on Instagram as well, but if, it's only if you really want to see pictures of my two German wide head pointers. Well, look, everybody, all the links will be on my website with regards to this amazing podcast chat. Kelly, it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. How do I sum up that podcast? I've absolutely got goosebumps and I can honestly say it was such a privilege and joy to have the opportunity to do that podcast chat with Kelly and for me there are just so much in there from different aspects that can support you yes you the listener with regards if you want to work in women's football I hope you've got different golden nuggets of knowledge which you can actually apply to your personal development now to make it a reality for me the one component that just sticked out learning from Kelly, literally behind the scenes of how women's football was built in England, is the resilience and the power of care and what you believe in. And for me, it just connected with me the most of that. It really taught me the real hardship of pioneers and leaders like Kelly, like Rachel Pavlou, like many others, like Ebru Coxall, who had to really grow the game of where it is around the world in women's football, but with the hardship, with the lack of investment, um, 
people not seeing the power of women's sport in general, but actually there is proof in the pudding now with data and how it can change cultures for the greater good. And Kelly, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. But for me, you taught me about what resilience really means. Um, it's not just how you pick yourself up from a certain situation, but it's really how much care you believe in what you do with regards to the influence you want to make in what you do. If that's working with an organization, working in developing an ecosystem in whatever that is in the sports industry, or literally yourself. And for me, without a doubt, me interviewing people from the last five plus years in women's football, the people I've had on the show who've been involved, honestly, I've learned so much along the way, which is in such a good way challenged my personal development. But with regards to the future of women's football, which was today's podcast topic, I really enjoyed the component of how brands can benefit right now in the opportunity of seeing the ROI, which is the return of investment through investing in women's football and what it can bring from an impact standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint of growing businesses. So I really do hope you enjoyed that component. But for me, as always, I hope you actually apply one component of what Kelly shared throughout our 32 years of experience, which you could just learn from one component from her character, from her leadership skills, and apply it to your sports career development now. So I want you to grab a piece of paper and pen. Yep, grab that pen and paper and write down that one thing you are going to apply and put a timeline to it. Is it a week? Is it a month? Or maybe it's two years to be the leader you want to see yourself in what you're doing if it's in the sports industry, or if you want to be a better leader in what you do in how you show up in the world. So for me, that is crucial. And the final point, which is so important because it was a, a real theme with the answer to this conversation is what wakes you up in the morning? What wakes you up in the morning that gives you the drive that Kelly had with regards to creating change for women and girls with regards to better opportunities as women's football? That's what got her up, what gets you up. So put that into practice now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Kelly said, resilience is built when you care in the work or the cause you believe in.